Welcome to the Mark Driscoll Ministries podcast. To find more Bible teaching from Pastor Mark, visit markdriscoll.org. Thank you for listening and being a part of Mark Driscoll Ministries. And remember, it's all about Jesus. I am so excited. This is such a great day. I get to tell you about Jesus. Jesus' life and legacy is without precedent or peer in the history of the world. There's no one that says what Jesus says. There's no one that does what Jesus does because no one is like Jesus. No one is equal to Jesus. No one sits alongside of Jesus. And today we're going to talk loudly, boldly, very excitedly about Jesus. Amen. All right. If you want to talk about something else, you came to the wrong place, but just stay. It's going to be good for you. And here is my thesis. When someone lives a tremendous life and leaves an extraordinary legacy, we examine their life in great detail. What was their secret? What was their X factor? What was the source of their inspiration and motivation? And when we examine the life of Jesus, is there some insight that could utterly transform and empower your life? Well, let me start with my first premise, and that is that Jesus' life is the greatest life and Jesus' legacy is the greatest legacy in the history of the world. At the dawn of the millennium, Newsweek magazine had a cover story devoted to Jesus. I will read from it briefly, but for those of you who are young, let me explain what a magazine is. Years ago, when we needed information, we would chop down a tree, we would put words on it, and we would read the words as we were riding our dinosaurs to work in school. And so that's what a magazine is. So Newsweek magazine says this on its cover story, by any secular standard, Jesus is the most dominant figure of Western culture. Like the millennium itself, much of what we now think of as Western ideas, inventions, and values finds its source or inspiration in the religion that worships God in his name, art and science, the self and society, politics and economics, marriage and the family, right and wrong, body and soul, have all been touched and often radically transformed by the Christian influence. There is virtually nothing on the earth that has not been touched by the life and the legacy of Jesus Christ. I'll give you some examples in the world of literature, Uh, Dante, Chaucer, Dame, Dostoevsky, Bunyan, Milton, Dickens, Hans Christian Andersen, Tolstoy, T.S. Eliot, C.S. Lewis, Tolkien, Sayers, and Solzhenitsyn all claim to be worshipers of Jesus, giving their life to Jesus, motivated toward their creative craft because of the love of their Christ. In the world of the arts, Michelangelo, Raphael, and Leonardo da Vinci all claim to be Christians. They painted Jesus and they painted out of their love for Jesus. In the world of music, Bach, Handel, Vivaldi, all claim to be worshipers of Jesus, motivated to worship Jesus through music. Today, we have an entire genre of music dedicated to Jesus. It fills airwaves, stadiums, and churches singing his praises. In addition, in the world of pop culture, Jesus is perennially popular. He is prayed to by Ricky Bobby and sung about by Kanye West. Uh, In addition, how many of you are wearing a cross today? The cross is the most fashionable icon in the history of the world. It is worn by everyone from immodest Hollywood divas to modest holy nuns. And it is the great symbol in all of human history, depicting the greatest sacrifice in all of human history. For women, Jesus has been a great liberator 
And in the days of Jesus, women were considered essentially property of their husband or their father. They did not have the same legal standing. They did not have the ability to own property, to testify in court, and oftentimes were marginalized. All of that changed with the coming of Christ. He had women who were his nearest and dearest friends, like Mary and Martha. He invited women into his inner circle of disciples and instructed them. He forgave women who sinned and reconciled their relationship to God. He even sat down with rejected and outcast women like a woman at a well in Samaria to befriend and instruct her. And when Jesus rose from death, and I have good news, he's not dead today, he's alive. When Jesus rose from death, it was women who were first on the scene at the tomb of the risen Christ. And that is one way that God honors women. In addition, in the realm of mercy, God's people have always been about caring and empathy and love and compassion. At the Council of Nicaea, an early Christian Council met in 325 AD. And at that time they said that everywhere that a church was planted to minister to the soul, a hospital should also be open to minister to the body because Jesus is our great physician. And so God's people have always been about caring for the whole person both the immaterial soul and the physical body. And so we have the Red Cross was founded by a Christian. We have medical relief agencies devoted to the cause of Christ and many hospitals bear denominational affiliations like Catholic, Baptist, or Presbyterian. In the world of children, children in Jesus' day were oftentimes used and abused. If you were unwanted, a small baby could literally be left out with the trash, left to die and or then taken as a slave or a gladiator or a prostitute. All of that was transformed by God honoring and bestowing dignity upon children by God himself and the person of Jesus Christ becoming not just a man, but a baby and a child and a, and a, and a young adult and going through those transitions that we do. Furthermore, Jesus' mother was technically a single mother since she was unmarried at the time of her conception and that honors and bestows dignity, including on single parents and single mothers. Furthermore, Jesus was adopted by Joseph. And since that time, God's people have been about foster care, adoption, and taking care of, as the Bible instructs, widows, orphans, and those in need. All of this is of course recorded in the Bible, which is the best-selling book in the history of the world, the most translated book in the history of the world, the most powerful book in the history of the world. And it was originally widely circulated because a Christian named Johann Gutenberg invented something called the printing press and education has followed and flourished wherever God's people should fellowship because we are people of the book and we want people to learn to read and right so they can hear a word from God, amen. And ultimately, as we consider the life and legacy of Jesus, we have to acknowledge that he literally is the centerpiece of history. That BC, before Christ, AD, Anno Domini, is how we measure time based upon the life and legacy of this man, Jesus Christ. We celebrate every Christmas, his birth. We celebrate every Easter, his resurrection. There is no one like Jesus. There is no one that compares to Jesus. There is no one who lives a life that is equal to Jesus or leaves a legacy that is equal to Jesus. And Christianity today meets on Sunday, the day of Jesus' resurrection. The Christian church is the biggest movement of any sort or kind in the history of the world. Jesus Christ is worshiped by a few billion people on the earth today. Over the course of the past few thousand years, nations, empires, leaders, causes, and movements come and go, but the church of Jesus Christ marches on through all time, all cultures, all nations, 
all languages because Jesus Christ and his great glorious and grand kingdom is Lord over all. And so if you are a Christian, you are on team Jesus, you are part of the biggest movement in the history of the world. And the center of our faith is not a place. Other religions have a place that serves as their headquarters. We have a person who serves as our head. We do not go to a place to remember a dead founder. We go to any place to enjoy the presence of our living founder. Now, summarizing and surveying all of this, a man named Napoleon looked at his life in comparison to Jesus. And he says, and I quote, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is not a man. Superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and whatever other religions, the distance of infinity. His religion is a revelation from an intelligence which certainly is not that of man. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself, Napoleon says, all founded empires. But upon what foundation did we rest the creation of our genius, he says, upon force. But Jesus Christ founded his upon love because love is the most powerful force in all of creation. Here's what I need you to know. Jesus is love and Jesus loves you and Jesus' love will accept you and Jesus' love will transform you. Jesus Christ founded his upon love and at this hour, millions would die for him. I want you to accept my first premise and that it that Jesus' life and legacy is without precedent or pair. And then the question is, how did he do it? What was the secret? What was the X factor? When someone lives a great life and leaves a great legacy, we study their lives in great detail. Biographies are written, film scripts are commissioned, classes are held, conferences are gathered, and people examine their life to see if there was something that they knew or something that they had that was accessible to us to experience what they did. And I want you to consider for a moment the incredible lack of resources that Jesus had. First of all, he comes from a small rural town. I've been there. It's a place that only had one well of water in his day. That means it could only sustain a very small population, dozens, maybe a hundred people. Jesus grew up in a poor rural peasant family. The home that he lived in was likely the size of the parking stall that you parked your vehicle in to attend our service today. And thank you for being here. Furthermore, in Jesus' community, most people were likely illiterate. We don't see that he had a formal education insofar as we could tell, did not go to college. He never traveled more than a few hundred miles from his home. He did not have a wife to comfort him, children to encourage him. He did not have significant financial wealth. The bit that he had was stolen from his bookkeeper, Judas Iscariot. Jesus Christ did not have an army to protect him. He did not have security detail to guard him. He did not have a PR firm to clean up the mess of the smear campaign against him. He did not have a lawyer to defend him against false trials and false accusations and false imprisonment. He didn't even have a Twitter account to directly communicate to his constituency, though I would have followed him and liked all his posts. Nonetheless, if we look at the life and legacy of Jesus and we examine the 
tremendous lack of resources, the impact that he made in three short years is absolutely staggering and astonishing. Furthermore, look at the obstacles that he overcame. Satan and demons opposed him. Religious people slandered and attacked him. Mobs followed him. There was a murderous plot against him. He was falsely accused, falsely arrested, falsely tried. His friends abandoned him. One friend betrayed him. Others disowned him. He faced every obstacle. He had little to no resources and lives the greatest life and leaves the greatest legacy. In summary, a non-Christian historian named H.G. Wells says it this way, no man can write a history of the human race without giving first and foremost place to the penniless preacher from Nazareth. How did Jesus do it? Now, here's what I wanna say. I love you, but you and I, we think about ourselves too much. We think about Jesus too little. We wake up, we think about ourselves. We go through our day, we think about ourselves. At the end of the day, we think about ourselves. We spend very little time thinking about Jesus. What I want to do, I want to spend considerable time and energy today thinking about Jesus. How did he live his life? If he was living your life, how would he live your life? If he was enduring what you were enduring, how would he endure it? If he was learning what you were learning, how would he be learning? If he was doing what you were doing, how would he be doing it? And to answer the cause-effect correlation between the life and legacy of Jesus, many false concepts of Christ have come into being. So I'm going to deal in rapid succession with five false concepts of Christ. I'm gonna move fast. We're gonna cover a ton of Bible. It's gonna sound like I'm auctioning off verses, right? Give me a Matthew, give me a Mark, give me a Luke, give me a John. Sold, revelation it is. We're gonna move quick, okay? So for those of you who are note takers, right now I'll just tell you, you can't keep up, okay? But here's what I do have. I have notes in the app and I wrote a book and it's all in there and it's free and I gave you a copy and you get what you pay for, so lower your expectations, but I'm trying to help, okay? So what we're gonna look at now is when people look at the life of Jesus, they have five false concepts of how he lived his life and left his legacy. The first false concept of Christ is that Jesus Christ was an alien when he walked on the earth, right? This is popular on shows on channels like the History Channel. How many of you have seen these? How many of you have seen these, right? And the, the thing that I do appreciate, they believe that Jesus did live and he did things that were extraordinary, but they attribute the source of his power to him being an alien from an, another planet, not God from another kingdom. Jesus emphatically, repeatedly, clearly, unapologetically stated that he was not an alien from another planet, that he was God from another kingdom. I'll give two examples to you in succession, but before we delve in, let me articulate this clearly. Nobody says what Jesus says. There is no other major world religion in which the founder says, I am God. You need to know that. Jesus' declaration of his divinity is without precedent or peer in any major world religion that has ever existed on planet earth. I'll give two examples. They, John 10, 33, answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man make yourself God. Jesus here is on trial, right? Everyone is watching, the reporters are taking notes. The press is present. The religious leaders have convened. 
And Jesus is on trial and the world is sort of waiting for his responding. Jesus, rumor has it that you keep saying, you're God, how do you plead? Jesus says, what have I done? They said, it's not what you've done, it's what you've said. Let me tell you this, Jesus fed the hungry, he healed the sick, he loved the outcast, but we didn't murder him for that. We murdered him for stating that he was God. And they say, it is not for your works, it is for your words that we are going to stone you. And they call that blasphemy, which is a human being declaring themselves to be God. In the next section as well, in Mark's gospel, we read the high priest. This is the religious leader. This is a legal proceeding. This is a public meeting. There is great growing fervor and frenzy around Jesus. Is he God? Is he not God? Is he saying he's God? Is he saying he's not God? So they bring Jesus on trial. God comes to earth, we put him on trial. Had to be weird, right? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help you, you? I do, right? I do. They asked him, are you the Christ? That is anointed of the Holy Spirit, the son of the blessed, the son of God. And Jesus said, I am. That is something that God said to a man named Moses back in Exodus chapter three, verse 14. Many, many years prior, God's people were in slavery and bondage in a nation called Egypt to a man who was worshiped as God named Pharaoh. God raises up a man named Moses and says, you need to go deliver my people so they can be free to worship me. Moses asks, when I show up, who should I say has sent me? God speaks to him and says, tell them that I am. The uncaused cause, the independent God of the universe has sent you. So when Jesus arrives and he says, I am, He is saying, I am the God of the Old Testament. I am the God of Moses. I am the God of deliverance. I am, and you will see the son of man. That is a designation that comes from the book of Daniel. Hundreds of years prior, the prophet Daniel wrote about the son of man. Daniel has this extraordinary experience where he gets to gaze into the heavens and he sees God in all glory being worshiped by angels and ruling and reigning with unprecedented, unparalleled, unpeered authority. And what he sees is one who is quote, like the son of man. And the son of man is God who looks like a human being and enters into human history to unveil and usher in a kingdom that overtakes all nations. Jesus arrives and he says on some 80 occasions, this is his favorite title and self-designation, he is the son of man. He is the son of man seated at the right hand of power. He is ruling and reigning at the right hand of God the Father and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, at this, they say, well, we can, we can, we can excuse all the other witnesses. Uh, Jesus, tell us who you are. Happy to. Um, I am the Christ. I am, I am the son of man. I am God, come to the earth. And so in hearing him, the high priest tore his garments. This is, this is rebuke and mourning. This is a, a deep, profound emotional response. It said, what further witnesses do we need? There's no need to testify. Under oath, Jesus has just said he's God. You have heard his blasphemy. This guy says he's God. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. That would be my question to you today. What is your decision? God brought you here today to make a decision. 
Who do you say that Jesus Christ is? Jesus said he was God. Jesus was put to death for saying that he was God. The most important thing about you is what you think about Jesus. The most important decision you will ever make is your decision about Jesus. I love you, it's an honor to have you. But ultimately, all of human history and all of your eternal destiny comes down to you and Jesus and what is your decision regarding his declaration. Jesus says, I am not an angel from another planet. I am God come down from heaven. Number two, false concept of Christ, Jesus was an angel. This is popular in a cult called Jehovah's Witnesses. There is a difference between a cult and religion. A religion never claims to be Christian. A cult started as pseudo-Christian and deviated from Christian doctrine. The Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult and they will teach that Jesus is an angel, that he is the archangel Michael, that as a result, he is a created being and not the creator God. However, Jesus told us he's not an angel, that he doesn't just inhabit a spiritual existence, but that he inhabits a physical body. So Luke 24, 36 through 40, following his resurrection, Jesus died, Jesus was buried, Jesus rose. It was on a Sunday. That's why we're here on Sunday. Jesus stood among them. This is shocking, right? How many of you have been to a funeral? You love somebody, they died. You're in mourning. Three days later, knock on the door, you open it up, there they are. Like, oh, uh, that's different. Some of you be like, that's unusual. We agree. That's why we call it a miracle, not a Tuesday. It's unusual. It's unusual, right? Jesus stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and they thought they saw a spirit or an angel. And he said to them, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see for a spirit or an angel does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. When they, and when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Why did he show them his hands and his feet, friends? That's where he was crucified. The most sensitive nerve centers on the human body. He says, it's me. Here's the holes where I was nailed to the cross. Here's the holes where I was nailed to the cross. I'm not an angel. I'm a resurrected living physical person who died to forgive sin and defeat death. I just thought of this. I think it's in Zechariah. It says that when Jesus returns, that we will gaze on whom we have pierced. One day Jesus will return in a physical body and the Bible says he's gonna wipe every tear from our eyes. That's what it says in Revelation. Some of you have shed some tears. This life has been hard. When Jesus goes to wipe those tears from your eyes, it's going to be with nail-scarred hands. This is a God who loves you. He really lived, he really died, he really rose, and he really loves you. He's not just an angel. He's God become a man. He suffered and he died and he rose and he's coming again in a physical body and his name is Jesus, amen? False concept of Christ, number three. Jesus was a good guy, but not the God guy. This is probably the most prevalent perspective that he is somewhere on the Mount Rushmore of humanitarians. Oh, there's Mother Teresa and Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. and Abraham Lincoln and Winston Churchill and Jesus. 
just amazing people that did good things and we all appreciate their glorious, great and grand example. This becomes popular and popularized in books like the Da Vinci Code, which says that Jesus wasn't God, but he was a good man and he didn't really die and rise. He actually uh, ran off, got married, had kids and lived a very normal life. Um, In this, there is the propensity for those who would say, I appreciate Jesus and I respect Jesus, but I don't worship Jesus, but I think he's a good man, but he's not the God man. There was a man who came to Jesus and tried to say this regarding him. Luke 18, 18 through 19, a ruler, a man who held some prestige and power and prominence called Jesus good teacher, to which Jesus replied, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Jesus is saying, don't call me good unless you also call me God. Jesus is saying, no one is good. We're all sinners by nature and choice. Only God is good, we are bad. And as a result, Jesus says, don't call me good unless you also call me God. And let me tell you this, because Jesus said he was God, if that's not true, he's not good. If Jesus says, I am the way, the truth and the life and no one comes to the father but by me. If Jesus says, I am God visiting the earth to save sinners. If Jesus says, pray to me, give your sin to me, trust in me, give your eternity to me, trust your destiny to me, give your family to me, give your life to me. If he is not God, then he is not good because he is promulgating the most damnable lie in the history of the world. And he is sentencing people to eternal destruction and damnation and devastation. Friends, Jesus is either good or bad. He is either God or not. And Jesus says, don't call me good unless you also call me God. Number four, the fourth false concept of Christ is that Jesus was a man who became God. This was an early church heresy called adoptionism. He was a guy who kind of got supernatural divine powers. Uh, This also is something that is popular in what I'll call new age or new spirituality. And that is that Jesus was a mere man who basically evolved as a guru into higher levels of consciousness. Um, I, I deep, I debated Deepak Chopra on ABC Nightline some years ago, and we were having this debate, dialogue, discussion, and what he basically said, both on and off camera, was that Jesus ascended to a higher level of spiritual consciousness that he called Christ consciousness. And then he basically said that he also had evolved to a level of Christ consciousness. So him and Jesus, apparently, they're they're co-valedictorians of human history. And then I said, I disagreed with that. And he said, you disagree because you believe the Bible. And as a result, he said, you are primitive. Now I would have been offended, but I'm too dumb to know what that means. So I wasn't offended at all. And the thinking was Jesus evolved into a higher level and plane of spiritual consciousness. And we can do the same and enter into that same level as he. This is, This is very, very, very common in Eastern spirituality and Westernized versions of it. And it is perhaps most popular in a cult teaching called Mormonism. We have a lot of Mormons in the Valley. If you're visiting, we love you. We're glad to have you, but what you've been taught about Jesus is wrong. It's wrong. I'll give two examples from Mormon leaders. 
Joseph Smith, one of the founders of Mormonism said, God himself was once as we now are and is an exalted man. Lorenzo Snow, the fifth president of that group said, as a man is, God once was, as God is, man may become. They would say, Jesus was a man who became God and he got his own planet and that men can become gods and get their own planet and their wife gets to be eternally pregnant, which to me, that doesn't sound like heaven. Amen, ladies? (laughs) He gets to be God, I get to be pregnant. It sounds like I'm going to hell. Amen? (laughs) I'm I'm not making any of this up. I'm just telling you how it reads. This is one of the greatest lies told in the history of the world. It's one of the first lies told in the history of the world. In Genesis, it's the book of beginnings, the first book of your Bible. God makes our first parents, Adam and Eve, in his image and likeness. Satan then comes to our first parents in Genesis three. And he said, God knows that when you eat, when you rebel, when you live independent of God, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, you'll be God-like. You go to a higher level of consciousness and insight and revelation apart from God, not in relationship with God. And the lie is that you'll become like God. Well, God already made us in his likeness. So Satan tells the lie that mere mortals can become God-like. There is an occasion shortly thereafter in Genesis where people are on earth and God is in heaven and a ladder comes down to connect heaven and earth. And the question is, do we go up that ladder to God through higher levels of consciousness, reincarnation, paying off our karmic debt, having our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, going to purgatory to pay God back for a while, or does God come down? And the story of the Bible is not that we go up to God, but God comes down to us. Human beings do not take on divinity, but God takes on humanity. This is exactly what the Lord Jesus teaches Next slide, please. John 6, 38 through 42. I have come down from where? Heaven. Heaven. God came down to the earth. The creator entered his creation. Every Christmas, when you open your Christmas card and it says Emmanuel, that means God with us. That's exactly what it is referring to. Not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus comes and says, I'm not trying to live my life independent, but dependent not in rebellion, but in obedience. They grumble, they disagree, right? It's it's, it's a controversy because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? We know this kid, he played second base on our kid's little league team. He did not come from heaven, he came from Nazareth. We know this kid and we know his parents. Jesus lived in Nazareth, but prior to that, He eternally existed in heaven and God entered into human history and he came down to be with us, to be like us. And he did that in all humility. Friends, we do not go up to God. God comes down to us. We do not become God-like, God becomes a man. The fifth false concept of Christ is that Jesus lived solely, continually, entirely, out of his deity. Um, This is complicated. Let me try and unpack this for you in a moment. Just hang in there. This first sermon is gonna be the most complicated. The rest are gonna be more practical, okay? So come back. 
come back and bring your friends and bring your enemies. Who knows? We might even fix that for you. So bring them all, okay? So when it comes to Jesus, he is fully God, fully man. And the thought is that while he was on the earth, he lived totally out of his divinity, not out of his humanity. And it's basically like this. Well, Jesus is God. I'm not God. Jesus does things, but he's God. I can't do them. So Jesus was a virgin. I'm not God. You know, um, Jesus forgave people. I'm not God. Uh, Jesus was tempted and he overcame temptation, but I'm not God. I'm just a person. Jesus is God. I can't do what Jesus did because I don't have what Jesus had. The result is that the life of Jesus is one to be admired, but not one to be experienced. And this comes out of ancient Greek thinking and philosophy. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epimenides, Alexander the Great, the great canon of Greek philosophy is based on a concept called dualism. And that is that the physical body is bad, but the immaterial soul is good. So what you do in the body is bad, and the goal is for the body to die and the soul to be unleashed from the prison house of the, of the body and to become a spirit being. And so they had a real hard time accepting that God who was entirely spirit also took upon himself human flesh and the body. And this infected and affected some early Christian teaching. And as a result, Christians have always felt the humanity of Jesus was a little bit complicated and that the earthiness of Jesus was perhaps irreverent. So let me ask you some questions. Did Jesus eat? Yeah, he did. Did he get tired? He took a nap, right? Could Jesus, maybe he got the flu. Maybe he got heartburn. So we say, that's, that's irreverent. No, that's human. That's human. It's not a sin to be human. Humans do sin, but it's not a sin to be human. And so what happens is in, in, in a fearfulness of portraying the full humanity of Jesus, Christian art tends to make him not so human. So many of the paintings of baby Jesus, he doesn't look that human. I mean, how many of you got a kid? Your kid doesn't look like that. Your, your kid's not like, with a halo, right? I'm here to command the nations. I love babies, I've had five. Most of mine, they have a tooth, drool, a booger, crooked hair, and they, they're like a sprinkler. Every hole has fluids flying out of it. That's what babies are like, right? How many of your baby doesn't look like that? And if they do, sleep with one eye open. That's a weird kid, that's a weird kid. Okay? So Christian art tends to depict Jesus as less than human. And then at the turn of the 20th century, a man named Thomas Edison invented something called the film camera, right? Movies, real to real movies. He was a Christian, tried to give the patent to his church and they rejected it, couldn't think of a need for it. Imagine that, okay? And then what happens is seven of the first 10 movies that are made real to real movies, uh, they have the word passion in the title because they're about the life of Jesus. One of the most influential was by a Christian, Cecil B. DeMille, I think it was the movie King of Kings that he released in 1927. This is a snapshot of that film. Jesus doesn't look human, right? He just doesn't. He's got an angelic glow, an aura. He sort of hovers. He's more like a Scooby-Doo episode, right? You're like, ruh -roh. I mean, he doesn't look fully human. From that moment for roughly the next 40 years, 
films that depicted Jesus up until the countercultural revolution of the 1960s, they depicted Jesus more like an aura than, than a full human being, okay? And so we think, and I'll just say this too, Isaiah says that he had no beauty or majesty that we should be attracted to him. What Isaiah was prophesying is that Jesus would look normal. And a lot of people, they don't know, who, even when Jesus is walking in the earth, they can't figure out who he is. Let me ask you this. If he looked like this, do you think more people would have got it? Which one's Jesus? I don't know. The nuclear one is glowing. You know, he's, he's like a nightlight. He's, I don't know, maybe him. Okay, so your concept of Christ is critical for your life and your eternal life. So what happens then, well, let me share a verse with you. First John four, by this, you know that the spirit of, uh, know the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, a physical body. This concept, it's, it's one where it rejects the physical and it receives the spiritual. The entire book of first John is largely written to combat this false teaching that Jesus is spiritual, but he's not physical. By this, you'll know the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit has revealed something to you. If you confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh from God and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. What he's saying is that God comes into human history as the God man, Jesus Christ. Uh, let me explain the divinity and humanity of Jesus. Jesus is fully God, fully man. Um, this morning I tied my, not to brag, but I tied my shoes, I did it, okay? So I tied my shoes this morning. And when I went to tie my shoes, one of the laces was a lot longer than the other. So the first thing I had to do, I had to straighten out the laces so that they were the same length. And then I had to pull them together, okay? This is like the doctrine of Jesus Christ. He is fully God, fully man. Those need to be equally held and pulled together. If, if you don't do that, you end up with all kinds of false teaching. There's a lot of knots in your understanding of Jesus. And so what we're talking about is Jesus is fully man, human, humanity, fully God, divinity, God come to be with us. We're talking about both things simultaneously. Now, this is such a complicated and sometimes controversial and complex issue that Christians were really debating and discussing and dialoguing it. So they assembled a group of more than a hundred theologians to, to have this conversation and to reach some conclusion. And they published something called the Council of Chalcedon's Chalcedonian Creed in 451 AD. Creeds are ways that God's people opening God's word led by God's spirit come to God's revelation regarding God's son, Jesus Christ. And so the Chalcedonian Creed was released. Let me be your nerd friend for a moment. They communicated something that all Christians have held to previous and since, and that is something called the hypostatic union, that God, Jesus Christ is one person, two natures, fully God, fully man. Fully God, fully man. Fully God, fully man. Now. The question is, why? Why? Why would God become a man? First Timothy 2, 5, there is, how many gods? One. So we say, I've heard otherwise. You've heard wrong. Say, that's offensive. Well, anything else is offensive to God. So we're either going to offend men or God. The question is not, will we offend? The question is, who will we offend? There is one God and there is one 
mediator. There's one way to God. There's one way to have a relationship with God. There are not many paths in many ways. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, singular and exclusive. No one comes to the Father but by me. There's one God, there's one mediator, there's one way to have a relationship with God. The man, Christ Jesus. Christ means anointed of the Holy Spirit, divine in God. Man is his position as Jesus walking the earth. This language of mediator, it's about reconciling a relationship. How many of you are in business and somewhere in a contract that you have with an employee or maybe a vendor? It says that if the contract is breached before the lawyers are involved, a mediator will be invited. And what the mediator does, the mediator seeks to be the neutral third party that looks at the terms of the contract and tries to ascertain what the breach of the contract was and what the consequences are. God had a contract, the Bible uses the language of a covenant with us. We were to obey him and we disobeyed him. We're supposed to live dependent on him. We try to live independent of him. We are to honor him and we dishonor him. We are to acknowledge him as God and we try to usurp, replace and supplant him and be our own God. And so the terms by which God created the universe and us to dwell therein have been violated by us. We call that sin. That is folly, that is rebellion. As a result, there is a breach in the covenant between us and God and God has a problem with us. Now God is not obligated to love us. God is not obligated to seek us. God is not obligated to serve or to save or to forgive us because we have violated and God is absolutely within his rights to provide no provision for any remediation. But God does something amazing. God sends his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ into human history. And Jesus comes as a mediator and a mediator is one who can represent both sides. Jesus in being fully God can represent God. Jesus being fully man can represent humanity. And he alone is the perfect mediator And he is the one to restore this relationship and to reconcile this problem. And the penalty for sin is death. And so Jesus goes to the cross, he substitutes himself for you and me, and he pays the price to restore the relationship. And he alone is the only mediator between us and the only God. That's amazing. Some of you say, well, what do I do to become a Christian? Give all your sin to Jesus and trust that he has died, that you might be forgiven, that he is risen to be with you forever. It is literally all about Jesus and it's all about you and Jesus. And when all of human history and all of humanity is boiled down to the bottom line, it is Jesus and it is you. He is the only mediator between you and God and he loves you, he pursues you, He came down from heaven to seek you and to serve you and to save you. And there's no one like Jesus. And he does this in extraordinary humility. Philippians 2, five through eight, Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, he had all the divine attributes. He had all of the divine um, privileges. Jesus is fully God for all eternity. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't fight for his position. He didn't say, I don't don't come to serve. I don't come to be humble. Instead, he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He what? He humbled himself. 
Some people say, how could I worship Jesus because he's humble, he's not proud? How can I serve Jesus because he served you first? The God who was surrounded by angels for all eternity hearing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty comes down to the earth to hear, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. The God who sits enthroned exchanges that throne for a manger. That God who lives in luxury comes to poverty. That God who lives in glory comes in humility. Jesus is humble and he's a humble servant. And he humbled himself to go to the cross and to die in our place for our sins. He loves you. When you see Jesus on the earth, you're seeing God in humility, not in glory. You're seeing God serve and not just be served. And I'll tell you why this is so important. My third point here, Hebrews 2, 17 and 18. He had to be made like his brothers, right? Fully human like the rest of us in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest because he himself has suffered when tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. If Jesus hadn't humbled himself and come down to be with us and to be like us, he wouldn't be a God who could relate to us, empathize with us, sympathize with us, or help us. If you were being tempted, Jesus would say to you, I was tempted, I know what that's like, I can help you. Jesus, I am heartbroken. Jesus would say, I died of a broken heart. I, I, I can minister to you in that moment. Jesus, People have betrayed me or abandoned me or used or abused me. Jesus would say, I know exactly what that feels like and I can comfort you in your moment of greatest trial and trouble and temptation. Jesus, I'm feeling weak. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling exhausted. Jesus would say, I walk the earth. I know exactly what you're going through and I will come to minister to you through it. See, if Jesus hadn't come down, he wouldn't be a God who could relate to us. God, I'm tempted. God would be like, I, I, I have no idea what you're talking about. God, I'm suffering. God's like, I don't, I don't do suffering. I stay up here. I don't go down there. God, I, I'm in a difficult place today. God would say, well, it's, it's always nice up here. That's why I don't get involved down there. Friends, there is no one like Jesus. There's no one that understands you and what you are going through. There is no one who is able to minister to you like Jesus. Here's what I'm saying. While on the earth, I wanna be careful with this, Jesus retained all of his divine attributes, but he chose not to continually avail himself to the use of his divine attributes, okay? He is all-knowing, but he humbled himself and he chose to learn as you and I do. Luke calls this growing in wisdom, stature, and favor with men and God. God does not grow tired, but Jesus humbled himself, and it says repeatedly that he grew tired and that he took a nap. It's okay to take a nap, Jesus did. If you forget everything else, write that down. That's helpful advice. <laughs> Think of it this way. I was watching America's Got Talent recently and there was a guy who was gonna shoot a bow and arrow and he was gonna shoot something off the head of Howie Mandel. Okay? And I thought, well, this could go either way and I'm gonna watch. So <laughs> then what they do, they blindfold him, okay? And I'm thinking, 
This for sure could go either way. In that moment, when he pulled the bow back and he had the blindfold on, could he still see, did his eyes work? Yeah, but he chose not to use them. It's like that with Jesus on the earth. He is fully God. He has all the divine attributes, but he lives as fully human. He chooses not to continually avail himself to the benefits of his divine attributes. He does on at least two categories of occurrence. One is to reveal himself as the Lord over creation and the kingdom of God. So in Mark chapter four, there's this massive storm and everyone's anxious and Jesus shows up and says, calm. And the wind and the waves obey him. And everybody present is like, who is this guy? Right, I mean, we, we recently had a hurricane and I'm watching the news and I was thinking of this verse. And first thing I'm thinking is, why is that guy out there for the news? Tony, you're in a hurricane. Hey, Tony, go somewhere else. You know, just leave the camera, go home. Uh, so Tony's out there holding on to something in the middle of the hurricane. And, and everybody's thinking, that's amazing that he's there. You know, it'd be more amazing if Tony was like, I'm sick of it, stop. And it did, that'd be amazing. That's what Jesus does because he's creator and he has authority over creation. There's another occasion where Jesus forgives sin. In Mark chapter two, he looks at somebody, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. And those present, they're all sort of perplexed. Well, who can forgive sin but God alone? Well, they're right. Psalm 51.5 says, against you only, Lord God, have I sinned. We sin against God, so only God can forgive us. In that moment, Jesus was doing the work of God. He was forgiving sin. Here's what I wanna tell you. While on the earth, Jesus is fully God, fully man. He would access his divine attributes to benefit others, but not himself. He didn't cheat. He's not like Superman. You know the story of Superman? Outward, he looks like a, a humble 30-something, unmarried, mild-mannered reporter. But underneath, he's got a blue unitard and a red ass and a cape, right? So if Superman's arm wrestling and it looks like it could go either way, he's faking. He's Superman. Jesus isn't like that. When Jesus suffers, he suffers like you suffer. When Jesus learns, he learns like you learn. When Jesus forgives, he forgives like you forgive. Again, we're just answering one question today. How did he do it? What was the X factor? What was the source of his power? Well, turning to some of the church creeds, and church creeds are good and we believe them. And they're summaries of Christian doctrine, but the Apostles' Creed in the fourth century has a great omission. It says that Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified. He was born and then he died. That's true, but there is more. The Nicene Creed in the fourth century said that he was, quote, incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. The creeds say he was born and he died. What are we missing? His life. What are you in right now? Life. You're in the middle. You've been born, you've not died. You're in the middle. The part that the creeds skip is the part that you're living. And the question is, if Jesus were living your life, how would he live your life? This is the great omission. And it, it leads to two problems. Number one, the Christianity isn't really helpful until you die. 
Let me tell you this. Your eternal life does not begin the moment you die. It begins the moment you meet Jesus. And your eternal life is not just that you die and go to heaven, but the day you meet Jesus, heaven comes to you. And then eventually you die and go to heaven. That means that Jesus is for life and death and Christian life is for those who are older and at the finish line and those who are younger and at the starting line. And this I think explains in large part why Christianity and churches are often filled with old people because it's about dying, not living. It's about the last day and not every day up until the last day. Jesus is for every day. Jesus is for everyone. Jesus is for everything. So how did he do it? What's the X factor? Tell you a little bit of a story. I, uh, I was in high school. I met a really sweet, nice girl. Her name was Grace. She's in the front row today. She's my very best friend. And uh, we became friends. And I was a moral-ish. <laughs> I don't know if the evidence would hold up in court, but that's what I thought, person. And Grace realized that I probably wasn't a Christian. And so she bought me this Bible. God used this book to change my life, alter my destiny. And so I went off to college, State University. Every class was talking negatively and pejoratively about Jesus, humanity, social sciences, history, philosophy, everything was anti-Christian, anti-Christ. And I thought, well, I better figure out where I stand on this. So I started reading the Bible. The first thing I realized is that I disagreed with most of what it said. It was like, people are sinners. I was like, Nah, I'm a good guy. I'm sure God grades on a curve. I'm at least a C student. I'll be fine. And the more I read, the more I realize that Jesus and I are very different and that I'm not like him. And it starts to reveal to me that maybe there's something wrong with me. And then I'm reading Romans 1 in my dorm as a freshman. It says, and you are called from among those to belong to Jesus Christ. And something just changed in my soul. The same Holy Spirit who wrote this book changed my soul. Okay. So I called Grace. I said, I've been reading the Bible and I love Jesus. She's like, good, you're reading it right. Awesome. So uh, I, then I got to find a church. Finding a church is scary, right? Because the problem with a cult is you don't know you're in one till the last day. That's always the problem with the cult. You're like, I love white shoes. Kool-Aid's amazing. What? You know, it's just like, what the? And so the last day, and so I was scared to find a church. I didn't know what to look for. I'm very terrified. I go to a church. The pastor gets up and he says, open your Bibles. I was like, all right. And he started teaching the Bible. And so I kept going to that church. And then um, I remember going up to that pastor with a book and it was a book about Christian theology and belief and such. And I had that book in one hand and my, this Bible in my other hand. I'm a college freshman. And I said, is this a good book? And I show him the book I wanna read. And he points at the Bible and he says, have you read all of that book? I was like, the whole thing? People do that? That's crazy. It's a huge book, you know? And so he says, uh, he took my book. He stole it. It was a stick up without a gun. The pastor violated one of the 10 commandments and stole the book of his congregant, okay? He took it from me and I said, hey, what are you doing? He said, I'm not giving this book back till you've read all of that book. I said, okay. So I go home, I start reading the, the Bible. I don't know if it was weeks or months. I read the whole Bible. I go back to him, I said, I did it. I read the whole Bible. I said, can I have my book back? He said, no. I said, well, what now? He said, pick a short book of the Bible, study it until you've got it in your heart and can explain it from your memory. So I picked first John, I studied it for a while. I came back to him, I said, I did it, what now? He said, pick another book and do it again. I was like, how long do I do this for? He said, do this till you die. 
So that's what I've been doing. <laughs> Almost 30 years, that's what I've been doing. I've had the honor of preaching through a few dozen books of the Bible and I love you. And I love teaching God's word. And it's an honor to be here with you. And I, I have the honor of sharing with you some things that have taken me decades to understand. And I put a lot of time and energy to figure it out because I love people. As a pastor, people invite you into the most precious, private and painful moments of their life. And oftentimes as a pastor, I just think, okay, how can I, how can I help? What, what do I say? Sometimes I don't know what to say. How can, I, how can I serve? Sometimes I don't know how to serve. Sometimes I get concerned about people. It's like, I can't be with them all the time. I can't, I can't give them what they need. I can't tell them what they need because sometimes I, I don't know. And I love you and I want good for you. And I wanna share with you something that I found, discovered, God revealed in the longest sermon series I ever preached. It was through the gospel of Luke. It took me a hundred sermons, a hundred sermons. And the book of Luke is all about the life of Jesus. And as I was preaching and studying that book, I started seeing this theme of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus. So his aunt and uncle, Zachariah and Elizabeth says that they are filled with the Holy Spirit and that his cousin John was filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb because a baby can be filled with the Spirit and a worshiper of God. And then it says that Jesus' mother conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, that his name is Christ or his title is Christ, which means anointed of the Holy Spirit. I read that Jesus began his public ministry on the day of worship in the presence of God's people. He reads from Isaiah 61 and he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I see that at the baptism of Jesus, the father speaks from heaven, the whole Trinity is present. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus, the son of God comes out of the water and the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove that the Holy Spirit had already been present and active in the life of Jesus. They knew that this was to show everyone else that they were going to do life together. I then looked at it, the baptism of Jesus and the receiving of the Holy Spirit in that instance is recorded in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four gospels, two of them, I believe it's Mark and John, add this caveat that the Holy Spirit rested upon him or abided on him. I met Grace March 12th, 1988. We were married August 15th, 1992. We have done life together. We raise kids together. We work through problems together. We pray for people together. We serve together. We do life together. We do ministry together. Jesus' relationship with the Holy Spirit was like that, only perfect. Because we're Western, because we're rugged, independent individuals, we think that Jesus was alone and autonomous. It was like Rambo or John Wayne, it was Jesus against the world. No, the Holy Spirit abided, remained, continued with him. 
empowered him. Jesus was never alone and he lived by the person, the presence, the power of God. That's the secret. That's the X factor to the life of Jesus. Fully God, fully man, living out of his humanity by the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit. And then Luke goes on to say, and I'll quote a few of these occasions for you, that Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit, that Jesus came in the power because there is power in the Holy Spirit and his emotional life rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Today is the first of seven sermons and here is where we will be going. You will learn about Jesus' family and how the power of the Holy Spirit can transform your family. The following week, we'll look at temptation and how when Jesus was tempted, he overcame temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit and you can do the same. Then we'll look at the emotional life of Jesus, how he had emotional health in an unhealthy world, just like yours and mine, and how the Holy Spirit will come to bring you the emotional health of Jesus. Then we'll look at Jesus' relationships and how he had healthy relationships, loving relationships with unhealthy and unloving people by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he will give the Spirit for you to do the same. And then we'll look at Jesus' suffering and how he suffered and endured demonic temptation and torment by the power of the Holy Spirit and how he sends the Holy Spirit so you can overcome whatever hurdles and obstacles the enemy would throw in your way. And then the last week, I'm so excited, the last week, we are going to talk about the forgiveness of sin and how Jesus dies to forgive sin and he sends the Holy Spirit so you can experience the forgiveness of sin and forgive others. And on that Sunday, we're going to baptize all the new Christians and it's gonna be a great, glorious, grand and good day. Jesus lived his life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't want you to just admire it. He wants you to experience it. Two more verses, you're welcome. Luke three, John the baptizer as Jesus was being baptized said that Jesus would come and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. If you're a Christian, you've not been water baptized, we wanna water baptize you. We'll do that at the end of the series. But Jesus also baptizes you in the spirit. The key to baptism is that the person being baptized needs to surrender. I baptized a lot of people. It's no fun if they fight you, right? <laughs> Gotta get them in the clinch, double leg takedown. It's just awkward, right? To be baptized, you what? You surrender. You surrender. You yield. You don't fight it. Some of you have not experienced the power of the presence of the person of the Spirit because you haven't surrendered, you're fighting. God, that's not what I wanna hear. God, that's not who I wanna be. God, that's not where I wanna go. God, that's not where I wanna do. And he said, you know what? Jesus died, you just need to die. Jesus surrendered, you just need to surrender. And then I can bring you up in power. Once you surrender in the waters of baptism, you are then surrounded by the water. So it is for those who are baptized in the spirit. They surrender and the presence of God surrounds them. Now the Holy Spirit is part of your emotional life, part of your relational life, part of your vocational life, part of your financial life, that he surrounds you as you surrender to him. Is there anything in your life that today you need to surrender so that you can be surrounded with the powerful presence of the person of the Spirit? And then in a moment, we're gonna take communion, remembering the broken body and shed blood of Jesus in a moment, we're gonna collect our tithes and offerings. In a moment, we're gonna do the thing that God made us to do, and that is to worship. But first, 
I need to share this with you. Luke eleven thirteen. how many of you are parents, grandparents? If your kid asks for something, 